it's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, everybody. I am Jeff Arbuckle, and this is Monster Mondays, presented to you by Film Seizure. Welcome to the final week of Hammer Halloween here at Monster Mondays. I've slowly started to pick off the various classic monsters that Hammer uh, ultimately adapted from the classics that Universal Pictures did back in the 30s and 40s. Obviously, there were two major hitters in the monster lineup for Hammer. The first was Frankenstein, and I finally covered one of those movies in the series earlier this month. And the second is Dracula, which I covered several of those films last October. Um, What's kind of interesting is in the Universal Classic Monster Cycle, Frankenstein's monster was the big star. The big lug appeared in multiple movies um and really became the face of that franchise there a lot of that is due to boris karloff however for hammer due to the presence of christopher lee i think the dracula became the poster child for the british franchise uh dracula was first at universal but frankenstein became the star frankenstein came first at hammer but dracula became the star However, Hammer would also dip their toe into the vast sea of monsters that uh, that either Universal did or other studios did at the same time as Universal. They had a Jekyll and Hyde movie. They did a Phantom of the Opera. They did a Wolfman movie called Curse of the Werewolf that was at the very start of Oliver Reed's rising stardom. Uh, they had movies with witches, devil worshippers, Rasputin, Jack the Ripper, zombies, you name it. Uh, Naturally, they excelled at vampire movies. Aside from the Christopher Lee Dracula movies I've already covered, I also looked at the Karnstein trilogy of The Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, and Twins of Evil, and I also covered Vampire Circus. Um, It probably won't be too much longer before I get back to the Lee Dracula entries as well as tackling Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. But you better believe that Hammer had a mummy movie, and that's what I'm looking at today, 1959's The Mummy. Back in the Universal days, Dracula came out in early 1931, Frankenstein came out later that same year, uh, and then The Mummy came out in 1932. While the order in which Drac and Frankie came out for Hammer was reversed, The Mummy was also Hammer's third classic monster movie released. And I really kind of love that symmetry. Uh, but where it gets a little weird is that Hammer is not really truly pulling from Universal's original The Mummy starring Karloff and featuring Imhotep. Instead, Hammer is going with the Karis version of The Mummy that Universal used in the 1940s sequels. And I wonder if part of that was to keep uh, to kind of having a mummy monster as opposed to the resurrected human Imhotep type of uh, lead villain. Whatever it is, we've got a full-on resurrected mummy monster staggering about in this movie. And man, I don't know what it is about Mummy movies that I just love. The 1932 version of The Mummy is my favorite of the Universal Classics, while the Karis sequels of the 40s are kind of a mixed bag in terms of quality and story. I do appreciate the element of those movies that come across almost proto-slasher type of films. Um, You have a creeping monster, a body count. These are slasher movies. Uh, It also mixes in mythology and archaeology and zombies and anthropology. Um, Having a mummy slowly creeping up on someone who somehow can't get away or are paralyzed by fear is silly, but also kind of satisfying when it comes to a monster movie. I don't know. I I just like it. 
And while this reunites the major players of Dracula and Frankenstein, which of course are Lee and Cushing, uh, with those films uh, director Terrence Fisher and those films writer Jimmy Sangster, this movie isn't exactly as well liked. Um, it, it, it turned out to be it was the longest before getting any kind of additional movies with Mummy in the title. A lot of people are concerned primarily with the script of this movie. Um, it spends a lot of time doing flashbacks and, and kind of self-referencing itself. Uh, at one point, one of the flashbacks goes back to something we actually kind of saw uh, already in the, in the movie. But, uh, you know, I mean, really, honestly, I don't know. I mean, this movie's got a lot going for it still, even though I know it didn't really uh, kind of uh, go go big with a lot of the Hammer fans. But, um, like I said, it was the longest before getting any, any additional movies with Mummy in the title. And those trio of sequels ultimately became B-movies to play with the more hyped and prestigious Hammer releases as kind of a second feature. Uh, particularly um, over here in America, they probably played a lot of drive-ins as a second feature. Um, the third of those later Mummy movies was actually an updated take on a Bram Stoker Mummy novel called The Jewel of Seven Stars, which has been adapted either loosely or um, or otherwise by a few times uh, in the decades uh, that followed uh, the early 70s release of the Hammer film of that uh, based on that book. Anyway, The Mummy opens in 1895 as a father and son archaeology team, John Banning, played by Cushing, and his father, Stephen, they're searching for the tomb of a high priestess, Princess Ananka. Uh, also, there is Uncle Joe, so I guess this whole thing is a family affair. Stephen begins uh, maybe poking around a little bit too much as he uh, gets into Ananka's uh, tomb, and discovers the scroll of life which opens up a secret passage and as uncle joe goes off to tell john about the discovery because john couldn't go and actually be there when they find the opening to the tomb because he had a broken leg which plays out later he is kind of limping around and everything um while you know joe is talking to john and kind of telling him it's like hey your father found it it's it's awesome uh it they hear Stephen screaming and he's found in the tomb mumbling and basically out of his mind. Uh, John and Uncle Joe are packing up and heading home and John claims he does believe something evil was indeed in that tomb, but they don't really kind of say much more than that. They blow up the entrance so it pretty much closes the tomb for good. Three years later, Stephen comes out of his catatonic state and immediately asks to see John. And Stephen tells John that he unintentionally revived a mummy when he was in Ananka's tomb. Uh, it was the high priest of Karnak, Karis, who was entombed with Ananka to protect it. And when they found her tomb, it angered Karis. And he says that Karis will hunt them down and kill anyone who desecrated the tomb for their trespass against Ananka. Now, a couple of drunk stagecoach guys uh, transporting a package from Egypt to be delivered at the home of Mehmet Bey, a worshiper of Karnak. Uh, but Bey is there to kind of really basically mess with the with the bannings. But the uh, the drunk guys, the the stage uh, stagecoach drivers, uh, run over a rock and it causes the package, which is containing Karis, um, 
in in like a basically a wooden uh, coffin, but he's kind of sleeping in there. It knocks Karis into a bog. Now Bay goes there to awaken Karis the next night to start basically carrying out the revenge stuff. And this movie follows along some of those universal movies from the 40s with a servant of a culty religious group that controls Karis. Uh, Karis falls into and comes out of a bog. Um, of course, Karis, Karis being a shambling monkey, uh, mummy and not really a man who was mummified returning from death, etc. So it really is kind of following those 40s mummies movies. Um, and of course, uh, there's a point which spoiler before we get to the to that point Karis has to turn against the person who's kind of controlling him anyway when Bay summons Karis he rises from the bog and has given his orders to kill those who got into Ananka's tomb and uh, you can even see Christopher Lee under all of his makeup react to what Bay is saying to him about the people who looked upon the long dead face of Ananka his eyes kind of widen when he hears her name uh, it's good acting, despite being mostly covered up, and I've got more to say about that later. Right away, Karis makes his way to the mental hospital that Stephen Banning is in and breaks into the padded cell and uh, that they had kind of put the old man into because he had an episode when the mummy was driving by in the carriage the night before. Um, so Karis easily strangles the old man to death. The death is ruled a murder by person or persons unknown, and this doesn't sit well with John. So he and Uncle Joe go looking for clues as to who could have or would have broken into the hospital, killed Stephen, and then just simply leave. Uncle Joe mentions an Egyptian that was at the dig site being the only person that Stephen really ever had a discouraging word about. John discovers more information about Ananka, and we see a flashback of when Ananka died from a disease and that Karis oversaw her mummification. Apparently, Karis went against normal tradition in her burial, indicating that he had a thing for the dearly departed princess. And, as it turns out, he did. After her burial, Karis re-entered Ananka's tomb and tried to revive her so that they could carry on their blasphemous love affair. And, of course, he was caught. And he was sentenced to be buried alive on guard in the tomb. Uh, his tongue was cut out to uh, prevent the gods from hearing his blasphemous uh, cries for help. The flashback ends with those who accompanied the funeral procession never returning from Mananka's tomb. So with that part being known to history that nobody came back, Jalam, uh, the, John then at that point kind of believes that the part about Karis must also be true. Uncle John or Uncle Joe rather doesn't really believe what John is saying. So he thinks that Stephen only overworked himself to death the stress of searching for the tomb the excitement of finding it everything just kind of got his imagination working overtime and he had a stroke that he never really recovered from however bay has sent karis out again he busts into banning's home and kills uncle joe john tries to shoot karis but it does nothing the inspector who comes to investigate the intrusion doesn't believe john that it could possibly be a mummy but John explains to the inspector what happened three years ago in Egypt, and you know, the the investigator just kind of, or the inspector kind of takes the the information and kind of leaves with it. But the the inspector also begins to investigate strange sightings being recorded by mostly drunks, but nevertheless something that sounds the same from every person who reports it: a giant man in bandages shambling around. So while the inspe the inspector does that. 
John realizes that his wife Isabel looks an awful lot like Princess Ananka. That coincidence actually saves John's life when he is attacked the following night by Karis. She comes in and he immediately stops believing that the princess is still alive and it causes him to leave without finishing the kill on John. And this is a, this is a bit of a surprise to Bay when John shows up to do his own little bit of investigation around whether or not Karis is being controlled by this Egyptian who suddenly showed up in town recently. He discovers that Bay happens to have the seal to Ananka's tomb just kind of lying around on Bay's coffee table or something there. Um, John decides to take the law into his own hands and return to Bay's place that night with a shotgun and a cop. But the investigator, the original inspector guy, uh, gets knocked out by Karis as they start to close in on uh, Bay's home. Then, Karis comes flying into Bay's study where John is snooping around. Again, Isabel comes in and it stops Karis for a moment. However, with her hair up, Karis doesn't exactly recognize her. So, she has to take her hair down and Karis decides that maybe that is indeed Ananka. Now, Bay makes a fatal mistake here by ordering Karis to kill her. When Karis doesn't obey, Bay plans on doing it himself. Uh, Karis stops him and snaps his body in half, basically. I mean, they don't show it that exactly like it sounds, but he kills Bay by putting him over his knee and basically snapping his spine. Um, Karis makes off with Isabel who's kind of fainted at this point and plans to take her to the bog where they'll go to a watery grave together. So as Karis kind of wades through the bog, Isabel wakes up and John tells her to basically tell Karis to put her down. She asks him to put her down and with her out of his clutches, the assorted cavalry that has shown up to help hunt down Bay and Karis open fire on the mummy, basically blowing him away. He sinks into the bog with the scroll of life and apparently because he's not in any of the sequels, he'll no longer be an issue to the people of England ever again. All right, so let's get to my uh, three things that I like about 1959's The Mummy. First and foremost, this was the third of the Color Hammer monster movies, and it is by far and away the most colorful. It's shot in almost ultra color. It has more in common with the biblical movies of the 50s than it did the Hammer horror films it was following just by the, the sheer way that it looks, the costuming, because we're dealing again with Egyptians, much like some of those biblical book movies did. Um, and it's just it just looks more like those types of movies than they actually do the horror movies. Um, you know, it almost gives the movie an extra layer of fantasy to it, too. Um, which kind of makes sense considering it is following that ancient love part of the story plus all of the mysticism that surrounds the whole mummy legends that followed the uh, unexpected deaths of archaeologists and anthropologists that uncovered tombs in the early 20th century. Now second, and this is kind of a weird thing, but hear me out on this. I think this movie is shot in a way that feels very claustrophobic. It's like being in a tomb or a sarcophagus and sometimes, I mean, there's a lot of medium shots a lot of close-ups and stuff like that it feels just very tight um you know we're not dealing with settings that are in like castles or sprawling laboratories um these scenes and it's not hard there's not too many outdoor shots either but these scenes are um 
you know, being or are happening in small bars or a hospital room or rooms in a house. It's a nice house, but a house nonetheless. Some of the ceilings even feel lower. It just feels way more cramped than any of the other Hammer films. And I don't know if that was just an accident of budget or production design or what, but the combination of that, the lighting and the uh, blowout of color, and it creates this mood and almost shallow depth of field uh, in the sets. It's hard to explain, but it just, it just all feels cramped and very uh, claustrophobic. Third, the makeup job on The Mummy is pretty good. Coupled with that, though, there are the little things that Lee does um, under that makeup as well. But first, let's get back to the makeup and costuming. Karis looks grimy and gross from being one old to hanging out in a bog for some time before getting to work. Uh, he's got things hanging off of him, be it bandages or skin. The dude's falling apart. There are features on his face that look like they are literally flaking off. And, you know, I mean, it's it was gross. It was gory without being bloody. And most importantly, it's interesting to look at. At one point in time, um, Karis is shot by an arrow. And for a long time, that arrow is just sticking through him. So it's just like it's you can tell he's been through a lot. <laughs> um, whether it's hanging out in the tomb for thousands of years or being cursed or, um, you know, being in the bog, being shot at, being, you know, arrowed and stuff like that. He's, he's got a lot going on there. Now, meanwhile, Christopher Lee under the makeup really had to, you know, two things to work with. And that was each one of his eyes. Um, there were gleams in his eyes or when they narrowed or when he realizes that Ananka, Ananka is no longer his. It, it's, I mean, it's really good acting under there the few times that it really focuses on his face and his eyes. Um, I believe this is the last time, at least in the Hammer films, that Lee went under that much makeup to do a role as one of the monsters. Between being under a bunch of makeup for Frankenstein's monster and the mummy, Lee really worked hard and did great work in those movies that, you know, basically opened and closed this month of of Monster Mondays episodes. And speaking of that wraps up this week's Monster Mondays and this month of Hammer Horror Films. Like I said, I'll probably be getting back to the Lee Dracula movie sooner than later. But don't forget to check out new episodes of Film Seizure every Wednesday and a new installment of Monster Mondays each Monday on FilmSeizure.com as well as places where fine podcasts are found like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Audible, and Spotify. Additionally, hop on over to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to follow us by just searching for Film Seizure. And while you're at it, head on over to my website, www.bmovieanima.com, and read new text articles each and every Friday. You can also follow B Movie Anima on Facebook and Twitter by searching for B, for B Movie Anima. Just search for the name of this website. Hey, and... You know, you can also go on over to YouTube and subscribe to the B-Movie Enema channel where you can find episodes of the movie hosting show that I do and see a bunch of clips that I grab and use for my articles. And uh, as I've said now for, uh, for this entire month, be sure to keep coming back through the rest of this year because uh, before the year is out, I have a huge announcement coming about Monster Mondays that I don't want you to miss. So until next week, stay spooky.